We come this morning to uh, two pieces of Scripture, two sections of Scripture that um, I believe we can see happen to be related as we get into our message this morning, Psalm 1, verses 1 through 6, and then Colossians 1, 9 through 14. And so let's read these before we begin. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And then the passage we've been considering from Colossians chapter 1, 9 through 14. Paul writes, And so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Our God and Father, as we consider your word this morning, we do pray, much as Paul has prayed here, that you would fill us with the knowledge of your word in all wisdom and understanding. We ask that you would do this, Father, that we ourselves might live lives that are worthy of Christ, pleasing Christ, that we might bear fruit in all the circumstances of life, that you would give us strength in Christ to endure all things with patience, that we would find in the midst of our hardships joy and constant reason to give thanksgiving to the Father, the one Lord who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, who himself has transferred us out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved Son, even our Savior, the Lord Jesus, who has worked for us our redemption and granted to us forgiveness of sins. And we pray, Father, that as we come to the scriptures, you would delight us in the truth that we find there. Uh, cause your word to feed us spiritually. Make these truths our very DNA as believers, so that we might live in a matter that's worthy of the name of Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this morning, there's three things that I want to uh, cover in this message. First, I want us to look at Psalm 1 uh, as stating, in many ways, the most basic concerns of the life of a believer. That is to say, those things which ought to matter the most. Secondly, I want us to look at Paul's prayer once again 
and especially to look at that fourth point about about the uh, foundation of the Christian life, that fourth key idea. And then lastly, I want to sort of bring this together uh, and really sum up what we've been saying over the last several weeks and to specifically say how we ought to be praying for one another. So I wanted to begin with Psalm, Psalm 1. And I want us to see that this psalm actually teaches four key ideas. These are four key ideas that we find uh, throughout the rest of the psalms, and I believe that they are paramount concerns. So if you look at Psalm 1, if you look carefully at it, uh, it outlines uh, what should be associated with God's people in terms of their blessedness. And we ought to be able to see this as we read throughout the psalms, a sharp contrast between the blessedness of the people of God and the people of the world who don't know God, who, whether they realize it or not, are actually living lives that are anything but blessed. So as we look at Psalm 1, we recognize, first of all, that the blessedness of the believer shows up in the believer's relationship to the Word of God. That's what we see in verses 1 and 2. The faithful believer constantly feeds his faith by a daily pattern of feeding upon the Word of God. It's the, it's the daily occupation of his mind and heart. It is his meditation. It is his Word. Uh, it is God's Word to him as a lamp unto his feet and a light unto his path. Then secondly, the blessedness of the believer shows up in the fruitfulness of his life. We see this in verse 3. The faithful believer is compared to a, a well-watered tree, a tree that's going to bear its fruit in its season. Then thirdly, the blessedness of the believer is going to show up in the fortitude that's associated with his life. We find this also in verse 3. It's found in the idea that his leaf does not wither. Uh, no matter what the blazing sun might be uh, under the Middle Eastern heat that we find uh, uh, there seasonally, his leaf isn't going to wither. Uh, the forces of nature are not going to bring that about. And in the overall meaning of the word prosperity that we find here, in all that he does, he prospers, we see the word that's used at the end of, for instance, Daniel chapter 6. Uh, that story about Daniel's life is about the conspiracy set out to destroy him. Uh, and because of that conspiracy set out to destroy him, because Daniel would not in any way um, detract or in any sense disregard his spiritual life with the Lord, went to continue to pray only to God, contrary to the edict given out by the king. Uh, king Darius, under this conspiracy, threw Daniel into the lion's den. But we know that Daniel's faithfulness to God, his fortitude in the midst of this trial, never ever wavered. So in Daniel 6.28, we read that Daniel, this Daniel, prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So the blessedness of the believer shows up in the fortitude of his life to remain faithful to God, no matter what the circumstances might be. Then fourthly, the blessedness of the believer shows up when the wind of the end of life is in view. And this is what we see in verses 5 and 6, that the believer has a sure and certain foundation for his eternal hope. So, when judgment comes, and it will, the believer will be standing in the congregation of the righteous, uh, whose foundation is this, the believer is known by God. Uh, one translation says, 
The Lord watches over the way of the righteous. But it's the Lord knowing the believer's life, knowing the way of the righteous. That's the foundation. Someone knowing that he's known by God in every sense of grace and mercy and redemption. So the blessedness of the believer is the fact that he's going to be delivered out of the judgment upon that day. He's going to be delivered out of that judgment into everlasting life. And his possession of everlasting life is his most certain and sure foundation. Now, Psalm 1. Now, when you think about the, the scriptures as a whole, when you think about the reality and truth that it's one mind, the very mind of God, who is the author of scripture, then we ought to expect to see a profound unity of ideas and concerns. All the way through the 1,500 years of scriptural history, during the time in which the Bible is, has been written, and so it ought not to surprise us when those primary themes that we find in the Old Testament, those primary themes that we find in the book of Psalms, the primary themes that um, that are the concern of the prayers of the saints that we find in the book of Psalms, it ought not to surprise us when we find these themes showing up again uh, within the book of Psalms or, as we shall see also, in the New Testament. So, for instance... With respect to the book of Psalms and with respect to faith and the word of God, think about Psalm 119. The entire psalm is a celebration of the, of the word of God, the law of God, but especially verse 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Or consider faith and the fruitful life. Uh, psalm 92 verses 12 through 15 says this, the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They're planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They're ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there's no unrighteousness in him. Or think about faith and fortitude. Uh, the fact that in spite of the trials and hardships, that the believer experiences, fruitfulness is something that's going to continue. Psalm 71, 17 and 18, where the old man, the psalmist there, prays this. Oh God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, oh God, do not forsake me until I can proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those who are to come. So there's that fortitude of faith that lasts throughout the believer's lifetime. And finally, faith's foundation. That is, looking toward the end of life and knowing that one has an eternal home with God. That's the climax of the 23rd Psalm. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We also find this expanded a little bit in Psalm 73. That psalm of Asaph is called a crisis or trial of faith. And he really does have a crisis of faith. Until he goes into the temple and, and God opens up everything for him. And then this is what his climax of that psalm happens to be. Verse 24 to 26, he says to the Lord, You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. 
Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So it's it's a foundation uh, in the believer's life when he can look not just to this life, but especially he can look to the life to come. He knows that his destiny is grounded not in this world, but in the world to come and in the life to come. Now, another beginning observation here. I have said this before concerning the Apostle Paul, as we've looked at the Colossian passage, emphasize it again. Paul's prayer life has been shaped and formed and saturated by the Psalms. And so we would expect that when we read of his prayer life, and how Paul prays, that that the content of what Paul prays would reflect what we find in the Psalms. So we would expect to see connections, similar themes. We would expect to see echoes of important ideas. And that's been my operating thesis in coming to these verses, verses 9 through 14, where in, in looking at this particular passage and a fourfold pattern there, uh, I have presented the idea that first, uh, God's people, as Paul prays for the church, and Paul teaches us to pray like him, that God's people would pray for one another first to have the right kind of faith. Faith that is grounded constantly in the word of God, uh, led by the spirit of God to understand the word of God. Secondly, that we would pray for one another to have the right kind of fruit, the kind of fruit that would manifest a truly godly life. And thirdly, that we would pray for one another to have the right kind of fortitude, a, a fortitude that would show a godly life of endurance with patience in the strength of Christ, with joy and thanksgiving, whatever is going to happen. And then, of course, what we're going to be looking at this morning, this fourth idea, we would be praying for one another that we as believers would have the right kind of foundation, a foundation that would speak to the end of life, a foundation that would speak to the life that is to come because of what God has done for us here and now in this life. And so, as a preliminary, all of that leads up to this, that again, the main theme that we've been looking at in this series, and specifically in these last several messages out of Colossians 1, 9-14, our main theme is essentially this, that in our calling, that is, in, in the purpose that God has given us as believers, to worship God in spirit and in truth, to have a worship-centered life that's grounded in the Word of God, illuminated and opened up to us by the Spirit of God, the truth of God, we must pray and we must intercede for one another. In those matters that matter the most, for the glory of God. Now, I believe that I can say this without any controversy. The things that we find in Paul's prayer here, verses 9 to 14, are in fact the things that matter the most to God. That respect to us as believers, these are the four things that matter the most to God. That when we think about what we find in the Psalms, the patterns there, especially Psalm 1, as it presents these ideas, as we look at what Paul prays here, 
as we consider these ideas. These are the things that matter the most to God. These are the things that we must be interceding for one another with respect to. And so the fourth of these is what we look at this morning, and that is the right kind of foundation. We should pray for one another to always live our lives grounded in, based upon, committed to, understanding that we have the right kind of foundation. Now, that's expressed in the last part of verse 12 through 14. The last part of verse 12, picking up the idea that it is, quote, the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, even though this is the fourth part of Paul's prayer, uh, it's properly the foundation. Because what Paul is describing here is salvation. And when Paul speaks about how we have been saved, he is laying out for us the very foundation and basis of the Christian life. What he does here, he does in three parts. Speaking, as it were, to three actions. The first two of which belong to the Father, the third belonging to the Son. And although we can distinguish these three parts, we cannot divide or separate them. The work of salvation is one united and unified plan of redemption. So, looking at these verses, all those the Father qualifies for the eternal inheritance, it is these he also transfers to the kingdom of Christ. And those who are qualified and transferred by the Father, it is these that Christ redeems and accomplishes the forgiveness of their sins by his perfect death upon the cross. Now, it is biblical truth to distinguish the different actions of the Father and the Son. It is terrible heresy to ever divide or separate them. So, the first of what of these three parts that Paul talks to is this. God the Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. Now note, right here, Paul places our salvation entirely in the hands of God, and he does so with two lines of thought. First, Paul tells us, it's God who qualifies us, not we ourselves. It's not our good works. It's not our godliness. It's not our righteousness that qualifies us. Now, of course, this is constantly the New Testament message. Uh, we're not qualified for this inheritance in any natural way. Anything that we have brought to the table, we do not qualify ourselves at all with respect to this eternal inheritance. It is entirely of God. And then secondly, Paul refers to this inheritance with respect to the saints in light. Now, this inheritance is, of course, that heavenly inheritance that is everlasting life. It is the inheritance that we receive in the life to come. It is, in fact, the kingdom of Christ as joint heirs with Christ himself. 
And we know this from what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 to 17, when he says, But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now, note, and note this carefully, the concept of inheritance is different than the concept of reward. An inheritance comes to us by the choice of the one who has the inheritance to give. And the Apostle Paul makes that manifestly clear in Ephesians chapter 1, if you would like to turn there. Remember that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, the Apostle Paul writes that God, that he, he has predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to what? What we've done? No, according to the purpose of his will. And then down further in verse 11, where Paul writes that in him, meaning in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And then verses 13 and 14, the theme is revisited in this way. In him, meaning Christ, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, Paul is teaching that this inheritance is entirely in the hands of God. We have not earned it. We have not deserved it. There is no merit on our part at all. It is a matter of God choosing to give it to us. God even predestinated us unto it. It's entirely in the hands of God. Now, brothers and sisters, what follows from this? If it is God who has qualified us for this eternal inheritance of salvation, if it's God who qualified us for this while we are sinners, then it is not possible at all for our sins to later disqualify us. Now let's say this very carefully, very carefully. If you've been qualified by the Father, who knows all things, and who knows all of your sin, past, present, future, then when he qualified you, he knew exactly what he was doing and exactly what you would be doing. Your inheritance is guaranteed by the one who knows all things, past, present, future. And this is why verses 14 and 13 and 14 of Ephesians 1 are so significant. At the very beginning of your life as a Christian, not after you had proven yourself as a Christian, not after you had sanctified and seen your life grow godly and godly and godly, not after you had grown less and less sinful, did God give his guarantee of your future heavenly inheritance. No. At the very beginning of your life as a Christian, God gave you 
the Holy Spirit as the guarantee of your future, the guarantee of your heavenly inheritance. And so no matter what happens to us in this life, we have been qualified for this inheritance as a divine certainty. Well, But you say, what about those who seem to lose their salvation? What about those who manifestly repudiate Christ altogether? Well, the Bible is deeply clear. Jesus spoke to this. He said there are tares among the wheat. There are false prophets, false apostles, false preachers. There are false believers within the visible church. But if you are truly qualified by the Father for the inheritance of the saints in light, you cannot disqualify yourself so as to be lost. And then you ask, well, how can I be sure? Well, that's question. That question is one that the New Testament essentially asserts. It's a question that would that would be posed to each of us. Do you love Jesus more than the world? Do you love his cross? Do you love his call to discipleship? Do you love persecution for his name's sake more than the applause of the world? If you love Christ, then you are one of his qualified by the Father. Now the second foundational truth that Paul presents here is this. The second aspect of salvation that he's talking about. The Father is the one who has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his own beloved Son. I want you to appreciate the great size of this truth. Paul is telling us that we have already been given by God the greatest possible deliverance. And therefore, it is the one great deliverance that we truly need. And that deliverance is this. We have been delivered out of the domain of darkness. And by this, Paul means the domain of spiritual darkness and death and eternal separation from God. And in this deliverance from the one domain of darkness, deliverance from that domain of darkness, we've been transferred from one to another. We have been transferred to the other reality that exists. We've been transferred to the kingdom of Christ, which the NIV puts in there, the kingdom of light. A, a proper interpolation. We have been transferred to the kingdom of light, the very kingdom of Christ. Now, once again, this is the work of God the Father. It's not anything we have done. It's not anything that we could ever have caused to happen. It is the work of God alone. This great deliverance has much to do in terms of how we would pray. And here is why. 
We so often desire and pray for a present deliverance from the temporal hardships and the struggles of this life. Both experience and scripture prove God doesn't always give us that kind of a deliverance. We so often pray for these temporal and temporary deliverances and our prayers go unanswered the way that we would desire. Because God has not promised to give us deliverance from each and every temporal and temporary hardship. What God has actually promised is to give us the endurance and the fortitude that we need to face these hardships because the greatest possible deliverance God has already granted to us. Now, I've seen believers spiritually devastated when God did not answer their prayers for temporary and temporal deliverances, especially in the face of great illnesses where the prayers were urgently prayed that God would heal, but God did not. And yet, brothers and sisters, this devastation need not have happened. If these Christians had possessed, in terms of their understanding of the Christian life, a true pilgrim understanding of the Christian life. Now, we brought this out last Sunday. We looked hard at the question and issue and teaching of Christian fortitude. We looked hard at the fact that Christ's strength is given to us in order that we might endure with patience and in that endurance, even have joy and thanksgiving in the very midst of the very difficult hardships of life. Because in this life, we have no guarantees that we will ever have things exactly like we want to have them. Instead, Paul was telling us that God has already given to us the greatest possible deliverance the one deliverance that we actually truly need. We've been delivered out of the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. That is our anchor. It makes unanswered prayer for temporary deliverances something that enables us to entrust all of it to God more deeply, to, to believe deeply, even more deeply, in God's wisdom and love for us when the temporal concerns have not been answered the way that we would want them to. Now, think about this. In January, two of my Christian brothers, a bit older than me, died from COVID. One of these men was a pastor. Uh, Julie and I had asked the church family to pray for him and to pray in the same manner that his family was praying for him uh, after he was admitted to the hospital and his situation became so serious. Uh, they were praying that God would deliver this husband, father, grandfather, friend, and pastor from death. They prayed for, they wanted deeply the temporary and temporal deliverance. 
But instead, God took him home. However, during the three-week battle, where prayers were up constantly that this man might be delivered from death, every believing member of the family knew that the husband, the father, the grandfather, the parishioners praying for their pastor, all of them knew that they prayed for someone who had already received the greatest possible deliverance. And so the strong Christian family knew that the father, many years earlier, had given him this deliverance out of the domain of darkness, translated him into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of their prayers were ultimately grounded in that great truth. They faced the hard season. They prayed during this hard season, grounded in that foundation. And their story afterwards has been one of great gratitude to God in the midst of their sorrow and grief. And likewise, for my second friend and his family, in the aftermath of his death, I was able to attend the memorial service for him online. And I heard about the family's joy in Christ, even in the midst of death. But also during the same time, I had a third friend, likewise battling COVID, also a man in his early 70s, but not a believer. His believing wife reached out to me along with others to keep him in our prayers. And here the prayers were for one thing. God, please spare this man's life because he's not a Christian. He yet dwells in the domain of darkness. Please spare him, because his death would bring everlasting judgment and hell. Please spare him, because his death would bring heartbreaking grief to the hearts of his believing wife and believing son. And God answered these prayers for the temporal and temporary deliverance of this man who's not a Christian. And yet the believers themselves died. But they died as men who had already received God's greatest possible deliverance. The man who didn't believe spared in answer to the prayers of believers so that the hope would yet remain that God may yet indeed transfer him out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Christ's beloved son. And all of this of the wisdom and love of God. The third foundational truth is the last part of verse 14. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, Paul's description of this third part of salvation concerns the work of Christ. And here Paul presents the cause and the effect. The redemption that Christ paid by his death on the cross is the cause of which the effect is that we receive the forgiveness of sins. Now, Paul briefly describes this in the next chapter of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, 
verses 13 and 14, where writing to them, he says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, Christ, together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so we recall then the unity of this great work of salvation. All those the Father qualifies for the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light, he also transfers from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. His beloved Son, and who in his work upon the cross, dies to pay the record of their sinful debt, so that the Father grants to them the forgiveness of their sins. This unified work of salvation is our foundation. It's our foundation as we look to the end of life and to the life to come. So here then becomes the full measure of what the psalmist declares in Psalm 1 at the end. When the psalmist writes, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It is certain that judgment will come. And it is certain that only those who are qualified by the Father, transferred into Christ's kingdom, redeemed by the work of Christ, having their sins forgiven, these and these alone will stand with the righteous in the judgment. For as Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 10, it is certain that a day will come when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, who will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. As believers, we can never let this be far from our thinking. And as hard as the breakdown of our culture happens to be, the future destiny of the United States pales in comparison. Even the significance of the breakdown of the Judeo-Christian foundations of all of Western culture pales in comparison to the significance of what will happen to those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The end of this life and the afterlife remain the issue of what matters the most to God. The things that ought to matter the most for how we pray for one another as believers. Now let's pull this together and let me give you some, some direction in terms of how we ought to pray for one another. When we think about the context of our daily lives, the daily struggles, the big and the little challenges that come up, of course we are to pray for one another. And of course we are to pray with these things in mind. We should always be praying for one another 
about these kinds of things. But in the midst of these things, and that which ought to structure how we pray for one another concerning these things, stand these four matters. First of all, faith. We need to pray for one another to have the right kind of faith in the midst of everything that's going on. A faith that's constantly fed by the word of God under the proper working of the Holy Spirit so that in the midst of what they're going through, our fellow believers will be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we need to pray for fruit. We need to pray that our brothers and sisters will have the right kind of fruit. So the kind of fruit that comes from that godly life, that godly walk, fruit that is worthy of the name of Christ, fruit that fully pleases Christ, fruit that grows in the knowledge of God, no matter what they're going through. And therefore, fortitude. We need to pray that our brothers and sisters will have the right kind of fortitude as they face the hard things of life. That they will endure, that they will persevere, that they will be steadfast, that they will live like pilgrims in this life, not because of stoicism, not because of rugged individualism, not because of some idea that um, they have the strength within themselves, but because they would be drawing their strength from Christ, finding their strength in his glorious might, so that what would be produced in them would be that patience and joy and gratitude to God. Brothers, we need to pray for one another this way. Because have we not seen many Christians bent out of shape during 2020 because of COVID and because of the politics? We need to pray for the right kind of fortitude as we go through this. And finally, that we would always be praying for each other with respect to the right kind of foundation. That we would pray for our brothers and sisters to be anchored in terms of their lives into the gospel of God's salvation by a sovereign grace, that at all times we would have our brothers and sisters looking at this life and resting in this truth that we have all received the greatest possible deliverance already. What God has done for us in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, when you pray for one another, as we pray for our brothers and sisters and the hardships they face, let us pray for these matters that matter the most. The right faith, the right fruit, the right fortitude, and the right foundation. Brothers and sisters, we need to pray for one another. May the Spirit of God and the Word of God teach us to pray rightly. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, we pray that we would treasure your word within our hearts that we might not sin against you. But we pray that we would have the kind of faith that looks to your word, rest in your spirit, uh, trust in what you do in us to will and to do 
your good pleasure so that we might, Almighty God, have lives that are worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Remind us again and again the eternal and central purpose of our lives is to live as those who worship you in spirit and in truth. Remind us that all of the kinds of prayers that you've taught us in Scripture are properly aspects of this worship. Then encourage us, Lord, to be those who worship through prayer constantly for one another, knowing, Lord, that it's grace upon grace that we need again and again and again. Father, may we care for one another, love one another, that we would be lifting up each other in prayer. And may we do so, Father, as your word and spirit teach us to pray. All of this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.